There are locked doors and closed windows in your mind, and dark rooms behind them, said Faramir. But in this I judge that you speak the truth. It is well for you. What oath would you swear never to return, and never to lead any living creature hither by word or sign? The Forbidden Pool, The Two Towers. and Melon, and welcome back to Interesting Tales from Tolkien, a Podmoot. I'm Mel. And I'm Kristen. And this week, we are covering The Two Towers, Book 4, Chapter 5, The Window on the West. Kristen, what challenge are you throwing me this week for my recap? I think we need to have some elvish presence this time. And I've already asked you about Glorfindel and Elrond. So I think this time we need to have a little bit more in-depth conversation about Lorien and Lady Galadriel. Okay. So there's this hobbit called Frodo who has a magical ring and he forms a company of nine travellers who travel together and their mission is to destroy it. They leave Rivendell and in the mines of Moria they lose Gandalf, their guide. Aragorn takes over and leads them to the land of Lorien, which is ruled by Celeborn and Galadriel, ancient elves from like so old, they're older than the moon. That's how old they are. And they give wisdom and gifts to this fellowship and send them on their way. At the falls of Rauros, the fellowship shatters with Sam and Frodo leaving, Boromir dying, Merry and Pim being captured, Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli going after them, and then they get into the wars of Rohan, and they throw down Isengard. Meanwhile, Frodo and Sam have been wandering, they've met Gollum, and then, surprise, surprise, they're being captured by men of Gondor. Well done, you! I'm going to start throwing out that beautiful Hobbit from the Shire and all that run-up into Bree. Nah, we don't have time for that. Let's get to the point of this, and that is Aragorn. What? <laughs> the return of the King Aragorn. Maybe. Can you let us know, Kristen, what happened in this week's chapter? Faramir returns and questions Frodo about the riddles, in particular, more about Isildur's bane, but Frodo doesn't tell. Faramir saw Boromir's body on the Anduin and his broken horn, so he knows he has died, and he shares that Gandalf used to visit them. The men blindfold the hobbits and take them past the waterfall to their secret hideout. As they talk of the history of Gondor and the fellowship's trip to Lorien, Sam betrays Boromir's desire and names the ring. All is okay for now, though, because Faramir doesn't want it. This chapter was so hard to condense because literally every paragraph has some important nugget about history or some detail about the story that we haven't heard for a while that the audience knows, but maybe some other characters in the story don't know. This was tricky. I was going to say, let's buckle in. I think this is going to be a big one. We've had a few short recordings up until now. So um, y'all pour yourself a mug of hot cocoa or something, because we're going to be here a while. <laughs> let's start with our new characters this week. We get a lot of characters from history. So let's start with the only character we actually meet, who's Anborn, one of Faramir's men who has seen some strange creature out in the woods that he thinks could be a black squirrel of Mirkwood. Hmm. Well, we know from his eyes that it's Gollum. Gollum's still following them. Then we get mentions of so many people from history. We have Mardil, known as the Good Steward, Erner, the last king of Gondor, and Kirion, the steward who gave the land of Rohan to the people of Rohan. We also have a mention of Hador, 
who Faramir speculates perhaps some group of his people are who the Rohirrim descend from, but we're not quite sure. And we also hear a lot more about how all of these new names tie into names that we've been hearing drips and drabs about before. Exactly. As I said, really packed chapter of information. And it starts with Sam waking up from his nap, which he thought had only gone for a few minutes, but has gone for a while. And now Faramir has his men, which are about two or three hundred strong, sitting in a wide semicircle. And he's on the ground with Frodo in front of him, and they're having quite the discussion. It looked strangely like the trial of a prisoner. And Sam is just not having that. He sneaks in and sits down at the end of the rows where he can see everything. I love this description. He could see Faramir's face, which was now unmasked. It was stern and commanding, and a keen wit lay behind his searching gaze. Doubt was in the grey eyes that gazed steadily at Frodo. And Sam becomes aware that Faramir's not exactly satisfied with what Frodo is telling him, why the company left Rivendell, what his part to play was, why had he left Boromir and where was he going now? And he really wants to figure out what Isildur's bane is. And he's actually guessing pretty well what's going on with Isildur's bane because he asks, if then you are the halfling that was named... Doubtless you brought this thing, whatever it may be, to the council of which you speak, and there Boromir saw it. Do you deny it? And so he's actually moved beyond asking Frodo direct questions about, like, what is Isildur's bane, and just moved into things that, even by not answering, Frodo is therefore answering the question. Quite crafty there. He's very crafty. And he goes on to say that whatever concerns Boromir concerns him. And he knows his history. He says, An orc arrow slew Isildur, so far as the old tales tell, but orc arrows are plenty. And further to that, they wouldn't be a sign of doom. And Faramir basically accuses Frodo of hiding Isildur's bane, hiding information about it. And Frodo answers, no, not because I choose to hide it. It does not belong to me. It does not belong to any mortal, great or small. Though if any could claim it, it would be Aragorn, son of Arathorn. And Faramir's like, well, why not Boromir? He's a man too. Well, not only is he a man, prince of the city that the sons of Elendil founded, which Frodo counters with Aragorn is descended in direct lineage, father to father, from Isildur, Elendil's son himself, and the sword he bears was Elendil's sword. And all the troops are super excited by this phrase, the sword of Elendil, because they think that's going to be the salvation then when the sword comes to Minas Tirith. Yes, and Faramir isn't, however. He says, so great a claim will need to be established and clear proofs will be required should this Aragorn ever come to Minas Tirith. He has not come, nor any of your company, when I set out six days ago. And Frodo counters with Boromir accepted the claim. He was cool with Aragorn being the heir of Elendil. Further to that, he says, and when we parted, his intention was to come straight from the Falls of Rauros back to Minas Tirith, and surely he would be there soon. You know, if you want to be an enemy of the one enemy, you won't hinder me. And he also reveals that he's got a separate task from Boromir, 
which is not to be revealed to anyone outside of the fellowship. Faramir pretty much says, So, you bid me mind my own affairs and get me back home and let you be. Boromir will tell all when he comes. When he comes, say you, were you a friend of Boromir? That's a difficult question. And Frodo tries to sidestep it, saying Boromir was a valiant member of our company. Yes, I was his friend for my part. And then Faramir drops a bombshell that he knows that Boromir is dead. Which Frodo doesn't know. And Frodo is really shocked. And he actually accuses Faramir of trying to trap him with a falsehood as if Faramir's lying about Boromir's death. Unfortunately, he's not lying. And Faramir says, I would not snare even an orc with a falsehood. And so then we get the story of Boromir's death from Faramir's position. Just quickly, at this point, were you believing Faramir going, oh no, he is honest and because I know by the end he seems pretty cool, but at this moment were you like, oh no, you're Boromir, well you don't know he's Boromir's brother just yet, but are you like, huh, I don't trust you or... I had a pretty good sense of Faramir even in the last chapter. I mean, I think, I think you asked me last time if I thought that the men were going to be a threat and I said no, because I don't think I got an impression of Faramir as being a threat. I actually, in my mind, thought maybe because of their wanderings, he had been in a position to see the battle with the orcs. But it never occurred to me until we catch up with it that he saw the funeral beer floating down the river. Yes, in a dream, importantly. Faramir wants to know how Boromir died and was like, I had hoped that his friend and companion would tell me how it was. And Frodo says, but he was alive and strong when we parted, and he lives still for all I know, though surely there are many perils in the world. And Faramir's response is, many indeed, and treachery not the least. And then we get the first interruption of Sam, of many, but this one is the first one in this chapter, and he doesn't even bother speaking to Faramir. He just goes right to Frodo and says, begging your pardon, Mr. Frodo, but this has gone on long enough. He's no right to talk to you so, after all you've gone through, as much for his good and all these great men as for anyone else. And then he rounds on Faramir, tells him off, and says... You have no idea what you're dealing with here and leave my master alone. And I love he's like standing there, these hands on his hips, his feet planted. And it even says there was some murmuring, but also some grins on the faces of the men looking on the sight of their captain sitting on the ground and eye to eye with a young hobbit, legs well apart, bristling with wrath, was one beyond their experience. And Sam also mentions that why is it that if we're on the same side, if we are all fighting the enemy, why can't we just let each other go about our business? Why do we have to get up in each other's faces? And Faramir explains he is in a weird position. He's pretty much like, were I as hasty as you, I might have slain you long ago, for I'm commanded to slay all whom I find in this land without the leave of the Lord of Gondor. But I do not slay man or beast needlessly and not gladly, even when it is needed. Neither do I talk in vain. So be comforted, sit by your master, and be silent. And then Faramir addresses Frodo, saying, You asked how I know that the son of Denethor is dead. Tidings of death have many wings. Night oft brings news to near kindred, tis said. Boromir was my brother, and I've highlight that and said dun dun 
an even bigger bombshell dropped. How did you feel about that, being like, oh my god, this is Boromir's brother? I wasn't surprised. I mean, obviously, we didn't know. I was shooketh. (laughs) I knew that Faramir was a big deal. And honestly, this whole chapter made so much more sense because they're brothers. I will say when I first read it, I wasn't sure if he meant like biological brother, second heir to the throne, or if it was just like he was my brother from another mother kind of thing. And I didn't really get the full extent of it until I read farther in the chapter. So maybe that's why I wasn't as shooketh as you. Because I saw the movies first when I was much younger. And I remember that scene where he just turns and he says, he was my brother. And I was like, what? Well, maybe it will hit me differently when we watch it. Little, little, like, eight or nine-year-old me. And so then Faramir continues to question them and ask, did he carry something that was special amongst his gear? And Frodo thinks for a while, and then he remembers Boromir's horn. And that's the first time that we see Faramir kind of back off of Frodo and realize, like, okay, You did know Boromir because you knew about the horn. As Frodo talks about what he remembers, it goes a long way to cementing a better relationship with Faramir. Hmm. It does. And Faramir gives us the history of this horn. I do believe Boromir had mentioned it's born by the first son of the house. But Faramir explains that if it's blown anywhere within the bounds of Gondor, as the realm was of old, its voice will not pass unheeded. And 11 days earlier, at about the same hour, he heard the blowing of the horn. And even then, both Denethor and Faramir thought it was ill-boding because they had not heard from Boromir since he went away, and no one else had seen him. And that just made an impression on me too about how secret Boromir's travels must have been on the way up from Gondor to Rivendell, how secretly the fellowship had moved where literally no one knew where they were. Exactly. And then we go on. Now, I interpret this as a bit of a vision, but I guess it could be literal that Faramir was sitting by the water of the Anduin and he was watching the shores of Eskiliath. And he says, But that night all the world slept at the midnight hour. Then I saw, or seemed that I saw, a boat floating on water, glimmering grey, a small boat of strange fashion with high prow, and there was none to row or steer it. Now, quickly, the reason I say he might have or he might have just had a vision is the vision Boromir spoke of in the Council of Elrond. He actually says his brother had the vision twice and then he had it once. So there is indication that Faramir has some kind of long sight or something, which makes me question, did he actually see Boromir's body or was this a vision? Huh. I read it as literal and that he was questioning it just because it was so odd, you know, that no one was steering the boat and he didn't understand how it had made it down the falls, that there was his brother's body and he had the elvish belt on him. It was so shocking to him. But yeah, either way. Either way. And I guess it doesn't matter whether he saw it or not. In truth, he knows enough. So I just imagine if it was really there, surely you'd grab the boat. If you're that close that you can see into the body and everything, you'd try to get it. 
Well, he does get close enough to realize that the only thing that's not there in the boat with him is his horn. And the only thing he knew not, a fair belt linked golden leaves about his waist. And I got the impression from the end of that paragraph that he didn't actually get close enough to the boat to actually be able to grab it. That it was close enough to be able to see in or maybe from the bank of the river, he was a little bit higher and he was able to see in, but he didn't actually have the time to get into the water, get the boat, because I think he might have made a play for the boat if he had been anywhere close to it. I mean, I I certainly would have if it was my brother. Exactly. And who knows? And once again, I guess it doesn't actually matter whether it was true or not, because he does say dream like it was, and yet no dream for there was no waking. And I'm like, but that doesn't stop it from being a vision. In any case, he knows of his brother's passing and saw the funeral bureau going down the river. And then Frodo confirms, yes, that is what Boromir was when I knew him, and the golden belt was from Lady Galadriel and Lothlorien. Frodo also points out the brooch, which Faramir closely looks at and says that he thinks it's beautiful, and it's definitely the same as the one he saw on Boromir, and then goes, so you pass through Lorien. He is, like, regarding Frodo with such wonder. Much that was strange about you, I begin now to understand. Will you not tell me more? For it is bitter thought that Boromir died within sight of the land of his home. It's actually Frodo who comes up with the idea that Faramir's sight was a vision because he thinks that this had to have been a trick of the enemy. A vision it was that you saw, I think, and no more. Mere shadow of evil fortune that has been or will be, unless indeed it is some lying trick of the enemy. And then he references the dead faces that he saw under the dead marshes. And Faramir says, no, I think this was the real thing. Faramir doesn't agree with Frodo because he believes that the enemy's works fill the heart with loathing. But when he saw Boromir, he was filled with grief and pity. So they have more conversation about how could this possibly have happened? How could the boat have made it down the falls? Neither of them know, except that Frodo says that the boats were elvish. There were three of them, and maybe that had something to do with it. For a moment, Faramir comes to grief, and he's asking, what did the lady say to you? What did she see? What woke in your heart? Why went you ever to Laurelindrian and came not by your own road upon the horse of Rohan riding home in the morning? And he then looks to Frodo. He says, to those questions, I guess that you could make some answer, Frodo, son of Drogo, but not here or now, maybe. He then reveals that the Horn of Boromir at least came back to Gondor. It was found northward below the infalls of the Entwash, and it has been taken back to Minas Tirith and lays upon the lap of Denethor. And it's been cloven in two. And I found this image just so heart-wrenchingly sad of their father on his throne the only thing left of his eldest son is these broken pieces of this heirloom that's passed down through the generations. I just found that image so sad. Yeah. And at this point, Frodo is also in grief because he says, for if Boromir was then in peril and was slain, I must fear that all my companions perished too. And they were my kindred and friends. And he begs Faramir to let him go. He is wary and full of grief, but he has to complete his deed. Faramir is a little more hopeful because he says, unless 
The people of Lorien themselves came to him who arrayed Boromir as for a funeral, not orcs or servants of the nameless. Some of your company, I guess, live still. And he says now that he doesn't really doubt Frodo anymore. If hard days have made me any judge of men's words and faces, then I may make a guess at halflings. And he pretty much says, look, I kind of believe you. I mostly believe you. But I'm meant to take you to Ministereth because you're meant to answer to my father. And my life will justly be forfeit if I now choose a course that proves ill for my city. So I will not decide in haste. He also mentions, though, there is something strange about you, Frodo, an elvish heir maybe. And I'm wondering if that's that golden light that we talked about in the last chapter that Sam sees coming and going. Did Elrond, like, infuse him with some sort of elvish power when he healed him? Or did he get some something from Galadriel? I'm very curious about this golden light and Frodo. Just quickly, do you remember what Frodo got from Galadriel? Remind me. He got a vial filled with starlight from the star of Erendil, the most beloved star of the elves. So is that the light that we're seeing, the starlight? Mm. You tell me. <laughs> Stay tuned to the show for Prediction versus Fiction, y'all. So, going back, Faramir explains to Frodo and Sam that if they were planning to go south, the road will not be safe for many days now, and it'll be closely watched. And so instead, that it is best they come with Faramir, and he will decide in the morning what is best for me to do and for you. So... There isn't really anything else for them to do except agree. So Mablung and Damrod go a little bit ahead. Faramir with Frodo and Sam are behind. And they go as quickly as the hobbits can go and talk together. And now that they're off by themselves, Faramir starts up another conversation with Frodo about Isildur's bane. Talk about persistent. (laughs) He is, and he's like, I realized that this was not a conversation to be had around many since there were all his men there at the time. And he says, you spoke with skill in a hard place and wisely, it seemed to me, but I learned or guessed more from you than your words said. You were not friendly with Boromir or you did not part in friendship. And he goes on to say that he would gladly avenge his brother's death. But he wants to know more about Isildur's bane because he thinks that's what lay between Boromir and Frodo. No lies detected. And Frodo says, you're close, but not in the gold. There was no contention in our company, though there was doubt. Doubt which way we should take from the Emin Mule. And Faramir puts that together as well, that the trouble came from this argument about which direction to take because Boromir wanted to bring Isildur's bane to Minas Tirith. And Faramir says he understands that in principle, that it must be something really beautiful. And then he apologizes to Frodo because he's been pressuring him so much. He says, but even as I spoke with you, I drew near the mark and so deliberately shot wider. For you must know that much is still preserved of ancient lore among the rulers of the city that is not spread abroad. We of my house are not of the line of Elendil, though the blood of Numenor is in us. And he explains that they descend from Mardil, the good steward who ruled in the king's stead when King Erenur 
the last of the line of Anarion, died childless, or left childless, sorry, and never came back. And he also reveals that when Boromir was a boy, he did not understand this whole line of succession and how one becomes king and thinks that a steward's son should be able to ascend to the throne, just like there would be in neighboring countries. Yes. He says, how many hundreds of years needs it to make a steward a king if the king returns not? Few years maybe in other places of less royalty. And Denethor answered, in Gondor, 10,000 years would not suffice. And Frodo replies, yet always he treated Aragorn with honor. And I love this because long ago you predicted the civil war in Gondor and <laughs> the civil war. Faramir says if he was satisfied of Aragorn's claim, as you say, he would greatly reverence him. But the pinch had not yet come. They had not yet reached Minas Tirith or become rivals in her wars. Well, obviously, if Boromir and Aragorn had both been in Gondor, there would have been some sort of something that happened. And I I am sorry that we don't get to see that. But clearly, Aragorn has much bigger fish to fry. I want Boromir versus Aragorn, Gondor Civil War. I don't think I was asking for much to have those circumstances put before me. And Faramir says, but he's straying from the point. The point is in the House of Denethor, they have much ancient lore. They know traditions. They have so much preserved in books and tablets, and parchment, and on leaves of silver and of gold, some of which none can now read. And he then reveals that the Grey Pilgrim brought much of this information to them when he was a boy. And Frodo's like, the Grey Pilgrim? Is this someone I know? (laughs) And it turns out we get some of the names of Gandalf we already know, Mithrandir, but we also get a whole bunch of new ones, Tharkun, Olorin, Incanus, and finally Gandalf. And sure enough, it's the same Gandalf that Frodo still believes is lost in the minds of Moria. Yes, and he tells Faramir, and Faramir is aggrieved. It is hard indeed to believe that one of so great wisdom and of power, for many wonderful things he did among us, could perish, and so much law be taken from the world. Are you sure of this and that he did not just leave you and depart where he would? And Frodo's like, yeah, I, I saw him fall. This was not Gandalf just being a jerk going, and you've got it from here, guys. I'm off to do something else. So even Faramir knows that wizards go to wizard sometimes. Yep. So each of them has had to share an incredibly costly death with the other. And Faramir pretty much thinks that perhaps this whole company was cursed. Maybe he wouldn't have done so and the journey of Boromir was doomed. Mithrandir never spoke to us of what was to be, nor did he reveal his purpose. He got leave of Denethor, how I do not know, to look at the secrets of our treasury, and I learned little of of him when he would teach, and that was seldom. So... Here's another place where Gandalf had traveled throughout to try to be able to solve these riddles. And Gandalf would ask them about the great battle fought upon Dagorland in the beginning of Gondor. And he was always asking about Isildur. And then I have a star by this next paragraph. Now, Faramir's voice sank to a whisper. 
but this much I learned or guessed, and I have kept it ever secret in my heart since, that Isildur took somewhat from the hand of the unnamed, ere he went away from Gondor, never to be seen among mortal men again. So Faramir is quite the detective because he's also been able to put together that this is probably Isildur's bane. Yes, he's definitely been thinking deep about it, but he cannot guess what this thing actually is. Some heirloom of power and peril it must be, a fell weapon perchance devised by the Dark Lord. If it were a thing that gave advantage in battle, I can well believe that Boromir, the proud and fearless, often rash, ever anxious for victory of Ministerth and his own glory therein, much desire such a thing and be allured by it. I'm like, you know your brother well. And then he confesses that he does not share that same drive to possess this. But fear no more, I would not take this thing if it lay by the highway, not where Ministereth falling in ruin and I alone could save her, so using the weapon of the Dark Lord for her good and my glory. No, I do not wish for such triumphs, Frodo son of Drogo. Now, I wrote in the margins here, hmm, because I am still not completely trusting of Faramir. This chapter ends up okay, but I'm just not convinced that we have one super ambitious older brother and one going to swear it all off younger brother, even though Faramir just seems so curious and interested in digging up all the information. I don't understand why he wants all the information if on some level he isn't also driven to possess the ring. So we'll have to wait and see what happens. Do you want to know what my, my margin says? What? Much noble, very resist. <laughs> I also put, he doth protest too much. <laughs> no, I won't pick it up. No, I won't use it. Hmm, I don't know. <laughs> Are you trying to convince us or you, Faramir? Exactly. And Frodo says, neither did the council, nor do I. I want nothing to do with this stuff. And Faramir goes on to say all he wants is for to see the white tree in flower again in the courts of the kings and the silver crown return and ministereth in peace, minis Arnor again as of old, full of light, high and fair, beautiful as a queen among other queens, not a mistress of many slaves, nay, not even a kind mistress of willing slaves. War must be while we defend our lives against a destroyer who would devour all. And then I'm sorry, I'm just going to keep quoting because then he has one of the most beautiful speeches of the Lord of the Rings and it is our quote for the week at the start of this episode. But I do not love the bright sword for its sharpness, nor the arrow for its swiftness, nor the warrior for his glory. I love only that which they defend, the city of the men of Numenor, and I would have her loved for her memory, her ancientry, her beauty and her present wisdom, not feared, save as any men may fear the dignity of a man old and wise. This whole paragraph is just so rich. So remind me what the silver crown is? The crown for the king. Ah. The king of Gondor's crown. Okay. That eventually Aragorn's going to wear. Is That's the plan? Well, you know, if Aragorn ever makes it to Gondor. Okay. <laughs> I'll keep reading. And Faramir says, I'm not going to ask you anymore, Frodo. I don't even know if you're going to confirm these guesses that I've made. And sure enough, Frodo makes no answer. But Faramir says, if you'll trust me, maybe I can even help you on your present quest. 
And Frodo really wrestles with how to respond because he would love to have help, obviously. But he also thinks that it's possible that he and Sam are the only two left of the original nine walkers of the Fellowship. He remembers how Boromir started off as a faithful member and how the ring twisted him. He sees how alike Faramir is to Boromir and yet unlike, but he doesn't really know what to do. So he just stays silent. And so they keep walking in silence for a while and we get these descriptions of Lorien. But Sam is mostly thinking about Gollum because Gollum has not been mentioned and as they're walking, he realizes that they've actually filtered back in with the other men and they're all making their way to the same place. And then a discourtesy must be done and Faramir is so apologetic. He's like, we need to blindfold you. And Frodo's like, yeah, well, the elves did it too, so we're good. Yeah, exactly. And Faramir's like, it is to no place that so fair that I shall lead you. But I am glad that you will take this willingly and not by force. And so they blindfold their guests and Faramir says securely, but not so as to discomfort them. Do not tie their hands. They will give their word not to try and see. I could trust them to shut their eyes of their own accord, but eyes will blink if the feet stumble. Lead them so they do not falter. And I'm like, oh, that's nice and sweet and gentle. It is. And also they are establishing trust on both sides now. And so they're blindfolded. They start walking. And they're turned about. <laughs> and they hear the waters and they feel the stony wall. And then finally they come to a place where Faramir says they can have their hoods drawn back. And I love this. They stood on a wet floor of polished stone, the doorstep, as it were, of a rough-hewn gate of rock opening dark behind them. But in front, a thin veil of water was hung, so near that Frodo could have put an outstretched arm into it. It faced westward. And I wondered right here if this water was somehow magical, like if they were going to walk through it and forget where they were or it would put them into enchanted sleep. That actually isn't what happens. It's just water that's super, super beautiful. <laughs> but I did wonder what they were getting themselves into. And this description of the light coming through. Oh. That's why when you were pondering the chapter last week, I'm like, you're not going to guess it. I was like, just think logically about where the story's going. Don't try to think too much on the title because that is the window on the west. Right. The level shafts of the setting sun behind beat upon it, and the red light was broken into many flickering beams of ever-changing color. It was as if they stood at the window of some elven tower, curtained with threaded jewels of silver and gold and ruby, sapphire and amethyst, all kindled with an unconsuming fire. Oh. And Faramir explains that this is the window of the sunset. Heneth Anun, fairest of all the falls of Athelion. Okay, I have to ask one question here, because I then looked at the map to see if I could find Heneth Anun, and there isn't Heneth Anun. Is that the same thing as Emen Anun? Because that is on the map. No, this is its own place. This is a secret place. So that's why it's not on the map? Yes, it is. That's why they had to be blindfolded and everything. This is a secret place where the rangers of Athelion go to, you know, regroup and hide from the enemy between their attacks. Cool, cool, cool. 
And Faramir explains that it is very beautiful and few have ever seen it, but there is no kingly hall behind it to match and to now and see. And so as the sun sinks, they go inside this massive cave, essentially. And the hobbits are taken to a corner, given a little bed to lie on if they want, and the men start to prepare the evening meal, set up tables, set the tables, and Faramir's moving amongst everyone and checking in with all of his people. We have Anborn, who explains that they didn't see it, no orcs at least, but I saw or thought I saw something a little strange. And he explains as it was getting deep into dusk, he saw something that he thought might be a black squirrel, but it just didn't seem right. And he says he could have shot it, but he remembers Faramir's order not to slay wild beasts without purpose. And while this is going on, Sam is watching and he and Frodo lay back and Frodo falls asleep. But Sam is not comfortable and does not want to fall asleep. He feels very responsible for Frodo and also responsible to just keep an eye on the men and make sure that they're not putting their trust in people that are not trustworthy. He tries to stay awake and he stuck his knuckles in his eyes. And they start to light more torches and wine is taken out. And Faramir commands that their guests be woken as it's time to eat. And Sam is very put off because there's people waiting on him. But I love that when the wide copper bowl and white cloth are brought, that Sam sticks his whole head in the water. I just love that. And Faramir's like, is this what you people always do before dinner? And he says, no, before breakfast. <laughs> and he says that cold water on the back of the neck helps you be awake. Like rain on a wilted lettuce. And so they're taken to sit beside Faramir, but all the men stand and look to the west. And Faramir explains, we always do. We look towards Numenor that was and beyond to Elven home that is and to that which is beyond Elven home and will ever be. And he's like, don't you have a similar custom? And Frodo's like, no. No, no we just thank our hosts if we're a guest. And Faramir's like, we do that too. And it says, after so long journeying and camping and days spent in the lonely wild, the evening meal seemed a feast to the hobbits. And yes, they are fed and looked after. And for the first time since Lorien, they are able to rest and be a bit at ease. And Faramir asks again what's happened to them on their journey so far. He says, tell me of Boromir, my brother, and of old Mithrandir, and of the fair people of Lothlorien. And Frodo's had enough of a nap and dinner and wine that he's no longer sleepy and is willing to talk. Yes, and he tells them lots of stories, including the story of the bridge where Gandalf fell. And Faramir, once again knowing his brother, says it must have irked Boromir to run from orcs or even from the fell thing you name, the Belrog, even though he was the last to leave. And Frodo says, yes, he was the last, but Aragorn was forced to lead us. He alone knew the way. And he thinks that if there hadn't have been the hobbits to think of, Aragorn and Boromir would not have fled. And Faramir says that maybe it would have been better for Boromir to die there in battle rather than the fate that awaited him above the Falls of Rauros. 
And Frodo says, maybe, but now it's your turn to talk. I want to learn about Minas Ithil and Osgiliath and Minas Tirith, the Long Enduring. Faramir explains that they have been fighting without hope for a long time, and that if the Sword of Elendil does return, it may rekindle hope, but he does not think it could do more than put off the evil days, unless other help unlooked for also comes from elves or men, for the enemy is increasing as they decrease. And he goes on to talk about the history of Gondor, and over the years... It's not that Gondor became evil or that the evil arts were practiced. It's that they became complacent. It was Gondor that brought about its own decay, falling by degrees into dotage and thinking that the enemy was asleep, who was only banished, not destroyed. And as the men of Gondor became more and more complacent, the enemy started to take over more and more of the lands. The thing that I like that he points out, and we can get into this really in the Silmarillion, and it's death was ever present because the Numenorians still, as they had in their old kingdom, and so lost it, hungered after endless life, unchanging. Kings made tombs more splendid than the houses of the living, and counted old names in the rolls of their descent dearer than the names of sons. Childless lords sat in aged halls, musing on heraldry, in secret chambers withered men compounded strong elixirs, or in high cold towers asked questions of the stars, and the last king of the line of Anarion had no heir. So interesting. So they were trying to pursue a form of eternal life, or glorifying the aging process over procreation, even, it sounds like. That's exactly how it sounds. But the stewards were wiser and more fortunate, and they are the ones who brokered the trust with the proud peoples of the north. And so we get this story about where Rohan comes from, how in the days of Kirion, the 12th steward, and Faramir notes that his father Denethor is the 26th, that these northmen rode their aides on the field of Celebrant and helped destroy their army, their enemy army, I should say. And he explains that these are the Rohirrim, as we name them, master of horses, and they gave to them the fields of Kalendorhorn, which they've now renamed as Rohan, and that has become their land, and ever are they the allies of Gondor now. And Faramir goes on to speculate where they might even come from, because he talks about how they are valiant, both alike, gold, golden-haired, bright-eyed, and strong, They remind us of the youth of men as they were in the elder days. Indeed, it is said by our law masters that they have from the old affinity with us and they are come from the same three houses of men as those of the Numenorians. And he says, Not from Hador, the golden-haired, the elf-friend, maybe, yet from such of his people as went not over the sea into the west, refusing the call. I don't know how much history you want me to dive into here, or if you'd rather just wait for the Silmarillion where we learn the histories of men. Yeah, let's wait for now. What I was really interested in is this next bit where he talks about there's basically sort of three levels of men. The high, the men of the West, the Numenorians. The middle, the men of the twilight, like the Rohirrim. And the wild, the men of darkness. And it turns out 
that while the Rohirrim had grown more and more like the men of the West, they've actually, I guess, devolved a little bit more middle of the twilight, but with memory of other things. Did you want me to explain? Yep. (laughs) Okay, so the men of the West, the high men, they are the men who descend from Numenor. Numenor, these men were elf friends. They were taught by the elves. They carried a lot of wisdom. Numenor was actually a gift given by the gods to these men who had helped in the first wars. The middlemen or twilight men are men who were around at that time. They descend from distinct lineages that were also in Middle-earth at the same time but did not participate in the Great Wars, did not meet the elves and become elf friends. Or when the call was made to, you know, come to Numenor and live on this paradise island, they refused to go. They stayed in Middle-earth. And then the men of the darkness are men who descend from people who sided with Morgoth, the original Dark Lord, or stayed very far away to the east of everything that was happening where the darkness was. Cool. So it's really almost geographical in many senses, as well as, yeah, the choice whether or not they decided to go to uh, Numenor. All right. Well, I look forward to more of that in future readings. And this is part of why Boromir was accounted the best man in Gondor, because he was valiant and he had the great horn. Well, that's one of the interesting things that we kind of just skipped over. One of the things that separated the high and the middlemen were the love of knowledge and learning and law. And it says, We now love war and valour as things good in themselves, both a sport and an end. And though we still hold that a warrior should have more skills and knowledge than only the craft of weapons and slaying, we esteem warriors nonetheless above men of other crafts. And hence why Boromir was so beloved, because he was great in war and battle but perhaps not so great in law and knowledge. That is such an interesting social commentary. And we are still debating this issue now about, is it more important to pursue knowledge just for the sake of becoming a more educated, more well-rounded human being, and therefore perhaps achieve world peace on a different level? Oh, how fascinating. And Sam has suddenly plucked up the courage, noting that Faramir is referring to elves with reverence, that he must also love elves. And he says, you don't say much in all your tales about the elves, sir. So he starts to talk about the elves. So Faramir says, well, you might know since you've been around Mithrandir and Elrond about the Edain, the fathers of Numenor, who fought beside the elves in the first wars and were rewarded by the gift of the kingdom in the midst of the sea within sight of elven home. So that's Numenor. They were gifted this island. But in Middle-earth, men and elves became estranged in the days of darkness by the arts of the enemy and by the slow changes of time in which each kind walked further down their sundered roads. Men now fear and misdoubt the elves and yet know little of them. And we of Gondor grow like other men, like the men of Rohan, for even they who are foes of the Dark Lord shun elves and speak of the Golden Wood with dread. Yet again, we fear that which with we don't have contact and what we don't understand. 
Faramir says, I deem it perilous now for mortal men willfully to seek out the elder people, but he envies Frodo and Sam for meeting the white lady. And Sam is so happy to be able to talk about Galadriel, the lady of Lorien. You should see her. Indeed, you should, sir. I am only a hobbit and gardening's my job at home. And he just goes on and on and on. She's so beautiful. Sometimes like a white daffodown dilly. I love that. Faramir's like, she must be lovely indeed. Perilously fair. And Sam's like, I don't know about the perilous part, but we seem to get out of there okay. And he starts to go on about how she's beautiful. You could dash yourself to pieces on her like a ship on a rock or drown yourself, but neither the rock or the river would be to blame. Now Boromir, and then he stops himself because he was about to talk about Boromir and Faramir's like, what? <laughs> and he says, yeah, your brother was a fine man. And then, oh, Sam, Sam, Sam. And he says, now I watched Boromir and listened to him from Rivendell all down the road, looking after my master, as you understand, and not meaning any harm to Boromir. It's my opinion that in Lorien, he first saw clearly what I guessed sooner, what he wanted. From the moment he first saw it, he wanted the enemy's ring. And I just put a big faceplant emoji right there in my margin. I mean, Sam, of all the things you could have said. And Frodo comes to the conversation too late, having been lost in his own thoughts. And Sam begins to berate himself. And then he turns to Farrow and says, Now look here, sir. Don't you go taking advantage of my master because his servants know better than a fool. You've spoken very handsome all along. Put me off my guard, talking of elves and all, but handsome is as handsome does, he's, we say. Now's a chance to show your quality. And I have to hand it to Faramir again because he puts together that it's the one ring that everyone thinks has been destroyed that must be Isildur's bane. And Boromir tried to take it by force and they escaped from him. I mean, that's a lot to put together from this one thing that Sam says. And I love this. It's so threatening and ran all the way to me. And here in the wild, I have you two halflings and a host of men at my call and the ring of rings, a pretty stroke of fortune, a chance for Faramir, captain of Gondor to show his quality. Ha! And he stands up and he is tall and stern and glinting gray eyes. I was really worried here, I have to say. Frodo and Sam try to draw their swords, which is comical. Yeah, all the men in the cave stop and look. And Faramir sits down and starts to laugh. And then he says, alas for Boromir, it was too sore a trial. How you have increased my sorrow, you two strange wanderers from a far country, bearing the peril of men. But you are less judges of men than I of halflings. We are truth speakers, we men of Gondor. We both seldom and then perform or die in the attempt. Not if I found it on a highway would I take it, I said, even if I was such a man as to desire this thing. And even though I knew not clearly what this thing was when I spoke, still I should take those words as a vow and be held by them. And it turns out, Faramir really is a good guy. He is going to stand by what he said, that he doesn't want it. And more than that, he doesn't even want Sam to speak of it again. 
For strange though it may seem, it was safe to declare this to me. It may even help the master that you love. It shall turn to his good if it is in my power. So be comforted. But do not even name this thing again aloud. Once is enough. And so the hobbits sit back down in a quiet and slowly everyone turns back to their own food. And Faramir says, well, Frodo, now at last we understand one another. If you took this thing on yourself, unwilling at others, asking then you have pity and honour from me, and I marvel at you to keep it hid and not to use it. You are a new people and a new world to me. And he starts going, are all your kin like this? And Frodo says, not all is well there, but certainly gardeners are honoured. They've now completed their alliance. They've both shared some things. All of the cards are on the table, including the truth about the ring, about Isildur's bane. Faramir basically says, all right, we're going to rest now. And in the morning, we're going to part ways. And he explains to Faramir that he is going to find a way into Mordor. He has to find the mountain of fire and cast the ring back within it. And Faramir just looks at him. He lifts Frodo up and carries him to his bed because Frodo's just so tired. And Sam is put to sleep beside him. Sam says, good night, Captain, my lord. You took the chance, sir. And Faramir says, did I so? And Sam's response is, yes, sir, and showed your quality, the very highest. Faramir praises Sam as a pert servant. And Sam says, Ah, well, sir, you said my master had an elvish air, and that was good and true. But I can say this. You have an air too, sir, that reminds me of, of, well, Gandalf of wizards. And Faramir's like, maybe you discern from far away the air of Numenor. Good night. Phew. All the bullets are dodged. All of the history and all of the information is out on the table. And honestly, I feel like I'm as tired as Frodo and Sam. This was a huge chapter. It was. We had so much information. It's going to be one of our longer chapters, that's for sure. Yeah, I was looking at the audiobook timings when I was listening. I usually read first from the book and then I listen to the two audiobooks. And the timing of the length of this chapter is almost as long as the entire rest of the book that we still have left to go. (laughs) So I'm also guessing that means that our upcoming chapters are not nearly as long. Perhaps we shall wait and see. Is there anything else you want to say about this chapter? Because it's so much information. Any questions you have for me? No, I think I asked as we went along. And I mean, of course, there's so much we can discuss. But I think this is a good place to leave our discussion. And what do you think about a shout out, Mel? Who do you want to give your character shout out to? Faramir. Of course. No questions asked. One of the reasons when you gave it to him last week, I was sitting there going, no, no, I'm saving it. I know what happens next. (laughs) (laughs) Well, he's a good guy. He's totally worth shouting out twice in a row. Which is what you're going to do? I can't imagine any other shout out than Faramir for this chapter. Honorable mention to Frodo because he did keep the secret of the ring. He did have those conversations where he kind of riddled his way through the answers. And poor Sam. (laughs) Sam has to go to jail, go directly to jail. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Putting his foot in it, that mouth of his. Oi. Oi. 
Are you ready for prediction versus fiction? Dun, dun, dun. The window is a way to look to the west through the mountains. It is in Minas Morgul. It's not in Minas Morgul. The men won't just let them go. They have to talk more with Faramir. Yep. Yep. They need to find Gollum. And Smeagol, if found, will betray the secret of the ring as he sees the men as a threat. Nope. <laughs> or not yet. I mean, we, we don't know what's up with Smeagol, except he's following them like a black squirrel. They will talk about Aragorn and the men of the south, which I think you meant. I'm not sure if you meant the men of the north, which are where Aragorn's people are, like the ones he's been living with. And then we'll find out more about Boromir. We did talk a bit more about Aragorn a little bit. They like said who this guy was. We found out a lot about Boromir from Faramir's perspective. No, I actually met the men of the South, and we did find out. We found out, like, how they got into Gondor and their relationship with the men of the North and all of that. Okay, you did. Okay, I wasn't sure because it was with Aragorn. I'm like, did she actually mean Aragorn's people? Anyways, you said the farthest we will get is the crossroads. We haven't even made it there. The rangers will be on the same side as Frodo. It appears so. The men and hobbits won't stay together past this chapter. Well, that's kind of what Faramir has intimated, but we don't know yet what's happening. You said that the ring would take a bit of time to poison the men. And so if they're only together for a short time, the men will be okay. Seems like we're going to be okay. And in this chapter, there'll be a lot of talking and looking for Gollum. We got a lot of talking. No one cares about Gollum. <laughs> we had one little black squirrel sighting. That's it. Next chapter is called The Forbidden Pool. The Forbidden Pool. Okay. Well, it appears that the men and the hobbits are going to part ways. I do think that's what's going to happen. In this chapter? Yes, in this chapter. I think the beginning of it is going to be loading up Sam's cooking gear with provisions for the remainder of their journey. I think Faramir is going to help point them on their way and maybe even a few of the men go with them for a bit just to make sure they get away from the entrance to the window correctly. And I think Gollum is going to meet up with them. I think one of the things that they are going to encounter then is this forbidden pool. And I think that's where Gollum's going to reunite with them. And I keep saying that Gollum's going to make a play for the ring. I don't know if it's in this chapter. Maybe, maybe it is. Whenever it is that Gollum makes a play for the ring, Frodo is finally going to have to put it on. The pool itself, I think the reason it's forbidden is that it has some sort of magical powers. So I think they're going to try to drink from it and it's going to make them hallucinate or put them to sleep or they're going to get lost, something like that. They're going to become enchanted somehow. You asked me before what is going to detain them. This is going to be a thing that detains them on their journey. I'm pretty happy with your predictions. I'm not sure if there's any, really anything else I want to ask other than when they get to the pool, is that when the men depart so the men aren't with them when they drink the water? I think the men have already departed. They send Frodo and Sam with Gollum trailing along in hiding. I think they send them on as safe of a way as can be found in this part of Middle-earth. This pool is encountered just by the hobbits and maybe Gollum. Awesome. Homework for the week? To read The Forbidden Pool. Sorry, that's Nero telling a cat off for invading his little den under my bed. Sorry, just give me two seconds. I've just got a credit card statement. For two cents. <laughs> I owe my credit card two cents. Unpaid balance. 
two cents. Really? Thanks for joining us. If you want to find us on social media, we are on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Podmoot. Our email address is podmoot at gmail.com and our website is podmoot.com. If you'd like to contact me personally, I'm at Mel Bickett on Twitter and Instagram. Kristen, where can people find you? I am on Twitter and Instagram at Kristen Conducts. Norvera Melon, until we meet again. Bye, y'all. Thank you.